Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast, Episode 16, To the Strongest, The Third War of the Diadochoi and the Babylonian War. In our last episode, we covered the first two wars of the Diadochoi from 320 to 316 BC. The number of successors to Alexander's empire was rapidly shrinking. The initial contenders, Perdiccas, Antipater, Craterus, and Eumenes were all dead, and the Archaid house was also becoming smaller and smaller by the day, with the executions of Philip Aridaeus, Eurydice, and Olympias, leaving only the boy king Alexander IV left. It seems doubtful that peace would last. It was the year 316. The Second War of the Diadochoi was now over, and the reins of power had once again changed hands. Cassander, son of Antipater, had wrestled control from the aged Polyperchon and was now lording over most of Greece and Macedon. Lysimachus, the quiet and unassuming successor, was still holding Thrace and the Hellespont. Ptolemy was in control of both Egypt and parts of Syria. The majority of the empire now remained in the hands of one man, Antigonus the One-Eyed. Antigonus's brilliant victories over the Eumenes of Cardia had left him the undisputed lord of Asia, where the bulk of manpower and wealth of the empire was located. Fitting with his self-crowned title of lord, Antigonus took to hoarding vast sums of treasure, quote-unquote borrowed from the king's reserves at Ecbatna and Susa, amounting somewhere to 25,000 talents of silver. In addition, he decided to clean up house a bit by removing governors that were anything but absolutely loyal, replacing them with puppets to stand in for himself. Military conquest had whetted Antigonus's appetite for power, and now the prospect of ruling over the former domain of Alexander had become a distinct possibility, even if the other great powers wouldn't tolerate such an act. Ironically, the catalyst for war was because of a rarely thought of satrap. In Babylon, there was Seleucus, soon to be known as Seleucus I Nicator. It is unfortunate that we're missing much of his early years of the wars of the Diadochoi, but we can piece together that Seleucus was a member of the Macedonian aristocracy. We have a rich tradition of divine parentage from either Zeus or Apollo, a standard motif for any figure of antiquity with her salt. To top it all off, numerous omens had followed Seleucus into adulthood, such as spontaneous combustion and magical rings. If anything could be made of these stories, this man was destined for great things. If we want the uh, less extravagant account, we can see that Seleucus gets little attention in the campaigns of Alexander until the invasion of India, and is merely a background character in the initial years after Alexander's death. He did receive a wife at the mass wedding of Susa, a Sogdian nobleman named Apamea, and interestingly enough, he would be the only one of the officers to actually stay married to their Asian brides, whereas everyone else quickly dumped theirs after Alexander's death. Things had begun to improve for Seleucus towards the start of the First War of the Diadochoi, where he was made Chiliarch under Perdiccas. After a string of defeats, Seleucus decided to change teams and took part in Perdiccas's assassination. For this service, Seleucus was given the deed to control Babylon, a rather generous but ultimately peripheral posting. Babylon was certainly wealthy, and contained many men to field for the armies, but it was ultimately up to Antigonus to act, as he was the strategos of the region. 
Initially, Antigonus and Seleucus shared a mutual understanding, to the point where the latter tried to help apprehend Eumenes of Cardia. But upon the Greeks' death, the relationship between Antigonus and Seleucus quickly turned south. Having raided the treasuries of the east, Antigonus had made his way to Babylon and was given a lavish welcome by Seleucus. Unfortunately, Antigonus' stay meant that Seleucus was no longer the master of the house, whether he knew it or not. It is said that Seleucus had punished an subordinate of Antigonus without the latter's consent, a huge slap in the face. In a mirroring of Perdiccas, Antigonus ordered that Seleucus produce a satisfactory financial statement to explain where the funds of Babylon were going to. While it seems like Antigonus was making a reasonable request, we by this point now know the money of the treasuries was basically a free-for-all by the successors, and Antigonus had just looted about 25,000 talents weeks prior. In reality, he probably felt either concerned or outright jealous of the capable and popular Seleucus, who controlled the former capital of Alexander's empire, and the money charge was just an excuse to remove Seleucus, just like he had done with the other satraps of Asia. Seleucus wasn't dumb, and knew that it was time to make a speedy departure, or else his head might make a departure from his body. In the middle of the night, he had his family bundled up on a horse and fled Babylon towards the one person he could trust, Ptolemy. Seleucus relayed the news of Antigonus's actions in Asia, how he was plundering the treasuries and eliminating any sort of potential rival in the region. Worst of all, Antigonus's plans called for the conquest of the other parts of the empire. This was all that was needed. Before the dust even settled from the Second War, the Third War of the Diadochoi was now about to begin. But for the moment, let us turn to Macedon. It had been a tumultuous few years for the homeland of Alexander, with Cassander gaining mastery over both it and the Greek peninsula against the official successor to Antipater, Polyperchon. Part of Cassander's success was the cultivation of a strong relationship with the Greeks. He strengthened the Boeotian League and rebuilt its mother city of Thebes, previously destroyed by Alexander almost 20 years prior. These acts of goodwill were also a brilliant way to try and balance the power of the other Greek leagues, who resented their Macedonian overlords. To reinforce his position in Macedon, Cassander forcibly married Thessalonike, a daughter of Philip II, clearly attempting to add legitimacy to his de facto rule, and also gave Philip Aridaeus and the Argead queen Eurydice a magnificent funeral. Although Cassander could no longer count upon the support of Philip Aridaeus or Eurydice since their deaths at the hand of Olympias, he had one trump card to ensure his safety possession of Alexander IV and his mother, Roxanne. So, when word arrived from Ptolemy and Seleucus that Antigonus's ambition was becoming limitless, Cassander formed an alliance with Lysimachus and Thrace. Then, the three warlords, Cassander, Lysimachus, and Ptolemy, came together in 315 and published an ultimatum to Antigonus. First, give up vast amounts of territory to the other marshals, including handing Syria over to Ptolemy and most of Asia Minor to Lysimachus. Second, restore Seleucus back to his position in Babylon. And third, distribute the plundered treasure with the rest of the successors. To Antigonus, this was unacceptable. There was some legitimacy to restoring Seleucus back to power, since he was placed there as part of the Treaty of Triparadisius and the Orders of Antipater. 
But what was ridiculous was giving the land and treasure to Ptolemy and Lysimachus, who didn't risk their hides in the Second Diadochoi War, and thus had no right to the territories or plunder taken by the spear. It would seem strange that the other successors thought that Antigonus would accept any of these terms, but perhaps they were using it as a starting point of negotiations, or the fact that it would provoke Antigonus to action, and that was the ultimate point. In 315, Antigonus gave his answer, prepare for war. Construction of a vast fleet was ordered from the people of Rhodes that year in 315, and Antigonus was able to support such an expensive operation by walking into the war with around 45,000 talents, making him the wealthiest among the successors. He also needed to intimidate the peoples of Rhodes, an effectively neutral Greek party, into building his fleet for him. But it was essential if he was to challenge Ptolemy, the other great sea power of the region. But despite its explosive start, the Third War didn't really seem to motivate anybody to do much of anything. The entire year of 315 passed without any real incidents of note, but in 314, things would heat up. Antigonus deployed his nephew Ptolemaeus in order to halt the army of Cassander in Cappadocia, while he himself would take Ptolemy down peg by peg. The first major siege took place at Tyre in Phoenicia, and my listeners should be mildly surprised by this fact, given its previous destruction by Alexander's hands in 332, but the location was impressive enough to hold a steady defense by a Ptolemaic garrison. But during the siege, a squadron of about 100 galleys sailed towards Tyre, with not just any commander, but Seleucus. One might expect that Seleucus and Antigonus were going to have an epic sea battle a la Pirates of the Caribbean, but this wasn't the case. Seleucus instead delivered some supplies to the besieged Ptolemaic garrison, then proceeded to sail right past Antigonus' fleet in full view and sailed off into the distance. Pretty anticlimactic, yes, but it had a point. This obvious display to a stuck Antigonus meant that Seleucus could freely sail along Asia Minor and Syria to pillage and capture Antigonus' strongholds, and there wasn't much that the Lord of Asia could do about it. It was clearly trouble enough to manage Tyre, and Antigonus even tried brokering a peace with Ptolemy, who just kind of shrugged and said tough luck to the whole affair. Morale was plummeting, and the Antigonid troops were not happy about their situation, but things were about to change. Negotiations in Greece were going on throughout 314 with Polyperkin, the displaced standing region of Macedon kicked out by Cassander in 317, with the help of Antigonus, mind you, but he was convinced to take the Antigonid side, and Polyperkin sent his son Alexander to stand in attire. Antigonus now just needed his Cassus Belli in order to convince his soldiers of their just cause. Deciding to address Cassander personally, Antigonus attacked him as the murderer of Olympias and having ravaged Thessalonike, keeping the rightful king Alexander IV and Roxanne in prison, and even having the gall to restore the Thebans, long enemies of Macedon, back to power after Alexander had smote them. Beckoning his men as the head of an army hell-bent on removing the usurper of the throne of Macedon, he had his rallying cause. He even attempted to market his cause for justice to the Greeks, proclaiming that the Greek people should be freed and ungarrisoned. Not necessarily free from taxes, and Ptolemy would also make such a claim. But the jester was nice anyways, and it had the side benefit of trying to annoy Cassander. 
This declaration of Tyre was a success, but it is interesting to see that Antigonus's development from a self-interested warlord into a potential heir to the throne of Macedon. In any case, the siege of Tyre would last a total of one year and three months into the summer of 313 before the garrison inside would capitulate. Initially, the Greek theater had a rocky start for the Antigonic cause. Cassander was busy operating to secure his power base in mainland Europe around 315, and thanks to the help of a fleet of Ptolemy, Cassander was able to retake many ports up and down the Aegean Sea, most notably Corinth. In addition, Polyperchon's son, Alexander, was convinced to leave the Antigonid coalition and join up with Cassander. It's strange to think that the son would side against his own father, but this choice would prove to be a short-lived one, since later Alexander would be assassinated in Sicyon in 314, and the ports Cassander had captured earlier were once again lost. In 313, the Aetolian League, a collection of city-states based in Aetolia in central Greece, had finished negotiations with a representative of Antigonus to support the Antigonid cause, effectively cutting off Macedonian access to much of the Peloponnesus and mainland Greece. One might wonder how nervous Cassander was, seeing the amount of friendly territory shrink by the day. It wasn't all bad, though, since Cassander was able to do some successful campaigning in Illyria against the hostile tribesmen who harassed the territory of Lysimachus. Unlucky for Antigonus, a longtime Antigonid supporter named Asander had defected in 315 or 314, carrying much of Caria and western Anatolia with them. This reached be an excellent launching point for an invasion into Syria, so this understandably freaked Antigonus out. Efforts were made by the subordinate general Ptolemaeus to recapture the area, but it was held in a gridlock thanks to the supplies and troops funneled to Asander from Cassander and Ptolemy. After finally capturing Tyre in 313, Antigonus had felt comfortable in deploying his naval forces to full effect, and in early 312, he engaged in a remarkable campaign that led to the eventual surrender of Asander and the surrounding area of Asia Minor in only a matter of weeks. Feeling his power base insecure, Cassander had opened negotiations with Antigonus, but ultimately these led to nothing, and Cassander had to leave his chance to fate by sending his troops to Thrace. Lysimachus had been dealing with internal rebellions since 312, both from rebellious Greeks instigated by Antigonid intrigue and Thracian and Scythian tribesmen looking to throw off the yoke. Surprising everyone, Lysimachus actually managed to quell these rebellions, throw off an Antigonid army who tried retaking the Bosphorus, and stopped an alliance between the people of Byzantium and Antigonus. Despite these setbacks, little could stop Antigonus from mounting a full-fledged invasion into Macedon, smashing through Lysimachus's kingdom and toppling Cassander, whose power had taken a hard hit from the Greek insurgents and Antigonid incursions. Much to the relief of Cassander, no invasion came. Unfortunately for Antigonus, much of his strategy depended on Ptolemy and Seleucus being tied up, but things seemed not to be going according to plan. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Audible. Life is action-packed, and finding time to fit in leisurely reading is difficult. When I need to listen to my favorite books, or do research for the show while I'm at the gym or sitting in traffic, Audible makes it easy to access an unparalleled selection of audiobooks, original shows, and more, right at my fingertips. As a special offer for listeners of the show, Audible is currently offering a 30-day free trial membership along with a free credit to the book of your choice to keep. With the 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War right around the corner, I'd like to recommend A World Undone, 
The Story of the Great War by G.J. Meyer. Covering everything from grand strategy to trench art to life on the home front, it's probably the best comprehensive yet humanizing one-volume work on the war to end all wars. To get this book for free and to find out more, go to audibletrial.com forward slash Hellenistic Age Podcast. That's audibletrial.com forward slash Hellenistic Age Podcast and get started today. Despite the success in Greece, the turning point of the war would be found in the southern theater in Syria. The leading Antigone commander of the Syrian army at a mere 22 years old was Antigonus's son, Demetrius, soon to be known as Demetrius I Polyarchites. He had some battlefield experience, having served alongside his father in combat against Eumenes, and would in time show great potential for command and personal bravery. But he was extremely hot-headed and prone to bouts of arrogance, and in Plutarch's opinion, hubris, the excessive pride famously characterizing the Homeric hero Odysseus. This hubris was made clear in 312, where an army commanded by Ptolemy and Seleucus was marching against the Antigonid forces raiding Syria. Stationed somewhere near the city of Gaza in modern Palestine, the Ptolemaic forces numbered around 20,000 soldiers. Demetrius himself was in command of a similar-sized force, including 43 war elephants. Unfortunately, the commanders of the Antigonid army did not have anywhere near the experience of Ptolemy and Seleucus, and the advisors of Demetrius begged him to call and wait for his father, and not engage in the meantime. The young man refused to listen, and decided to attack. The whole battle was a bit of a mess, since Demetrius had beckoned that a squad of elephants would be the decisive factor in the battle. He seems to not have realized that the elephant was old hat by now, and this wasn't Seleucus's or Ptolemy's first go-round with the ponies. Or elephants. Whatever. Caltrops. Giant iron spikes were scattered among the soil, puncturing the soft bottoms of the pachyderm's feet, and halted them in their tracks, or sent them into a panicked frenzy. The rest of the army was quickly overwhelmed, and though Demetrius had tried to bravely rally his forces, the battle was already over. He barely escaped with his own life, and fled the battlefield, leaving behind his personal belongings, resulting in 8,000 of his own troops being captured. Ptolemy was gracious enough to offer Demetrius his sword, and the chance to bury his dead, along with the message that the whole war was nothing personal. It was for honor and power. The Battle of Gaza had now changed the course of the war. The army of Syria was now in the hands of Ptolemy, and he quickly snatched Phoenicia up too. Demetrius was able to soothe his pride, and perhaps reassert his father's trust in him, by managing to ambush a Ptolemaic commander, capturing a huge amount of booty and about 7,000 men. In repayment for Ptolemy's magnanimity, he returned the commander with gifts as well. Still, the victory in Gaza had forced Antigonus to leave Asia Minor, and to put aside thoughts of invading Europe for a later time declaring a truce with Lysimachus and the much-relieved Cassander, and he rushed back to Syria and Phoenicia to kick out Ptolemy back to Egypt. It was in 311 when the prodigal son returned to Babylon. Seleucus, leading a force of 1,000 men, re-entered through the gates of Babylon seated upon his horse, not as a landlord coming to collect his rent, but as a beloved hero welcomed back home. 
This may be surprising, given the general distrust of the Macedonian governors as one was replaced by the other. But Seleucus was an extremely popular administrator during his management of Babylon between the Peace of Triparadesis and his flight from Babylon nearly four years earlier. His arrival, dated as the first Nisan 311, equating to somewhere in April to June, would become the founding date of the Seleucid Empire. The war had taken its toll on everyone, and they had enough, at least for the moment. In 311, the peace of the dynasty was settled. Little information is known about where it was signed and what the exact details of the signing were. But we actually have an inscription that survives, detailing a letter sent by Antigonus to the peoples of Skepsis in Greece. In it, Antigonus emphasizes his devotion to the Greek cause, and that all cities of the Hellene peoples would be free and autonomous, and he claimed he wished to stop the war before it resulted in the destruction of Greece. Of course, this was almost certainly intended to be propaganda, but Antigonus and Demetrius were certainly held in high esteem by the Greeks, as would later be seen in 305 BC. Barring this, little else was gained from the four years of fighting. Most of the rulers had either retained their holdings as they were before the war, even if Cassander was rather shaken by the efforts of Antigonus in Greece, and the treaty was effectively just a ceasefire. Antigonus probably came out for the best, considering that he was now recognized as the Lord of Asia and had control of most of the provinces east of the Hellespont into Mesopotamia. But Seleucus was restored back to his original position, solving the initial problem which was the catalyst for the war to begin with. But, as we all know now, war was never far around the corner when you have such ambitious titans running around. It's now time that I'm going to talk about what is ultimately been called the Babylonian War. We unfortunately know very little about the conflict, besides a couple of brief mentions here and there, and from archaeological records from the area of Babylonia. Throughout 311, Seleucus had been busy in Babylonia, consolidating his territory and expanding his military might, knowing full well that Antigonus would be really unhappy with the fact that Babylon was snatched away under his nose and would probably launch a campaign very soon. In the meantime, Seleucus had squared off against Nicanor, a loyal satrap of Antigonus, who invaded Babylonia with an army of 20,000 men, vastly outnumbering Seleucus's army of only 4,000. Seleucus was no slouch, and managed to trap Nicanor's army in a small, marshy wasteland in Babylonia, and in a surprise attack, wiped out much of Nicanor's officers, and drove him out. Seleucus then promptly recruited these soldiers, enlarging his army to around 25,000 men. Over the next year, Seleucus moved across the region, capturing the cities of Ekbatna and Susa, expanding his territory from the Tigris River to eastern Iran. In time, he would adopt the title Nicator, meaning victorious. Of course, this would not settle with the Antigonids. In 310, Demetrius took an army and invaded Babylonia laying siege to the famed city and capturing one of the citadels while Seleucus was out east. The Seleucid governor of the city had engaged in a guerrilla war against the Antigonid forces, prompting Antigonus himself to come and supervise the siege. The fighting was devastating to the region, indicated by surviving Babylonian records, which show immense price inflation of basic necessities and spoke frequently of the suffering of the people. Seleucus had retained the loyalty of his Iranian subjects, and street fighting had occurred in the once mighty city to fend off the Antigonid forces. Things continued like this for several months, until the year 309, when a pitched battle took place, 
recorded by the 2nd century author Polyanus in brief detail. Antigonus and Seleucus had met somewhere in Mesopotamia on the battlefield, engaging in combat lasting all day before both parties returned to camp, calling it a draw. That night, while the Antigonan army relaxed and drank, Seleucus ordered for his men to keep their armor on while they ate, and told them to sleep in battle formation. The next morning, the Antigonans were overwhelmed by a surprise attack from the Seleucid forces, and Antigonus was sent fleeing away from Babylonia. With this defeat, and thanks to the prodding of a scheming Ptolemy, Antigonus decided to give up recapturing his former eastern satrapies. He and Seleucus arranged a peace treaty, recognizing the latter's status as master of Babylon, and the Antigonids left the Iranian territories alone. Seleucus won a brilliant victory, able to best the premier general of the successors, and in little over a year moved from having a small cadre of about a thousand men and a city to acquiring an army of around 30,000, with a territory stretching around 2,000 kilometers. With the heartland of Iran secure, Seleucus had only one direction to go, east. It is there he would continue to grow from domain to kingdom to eventually empire. That's for another episode, however. Before we finish, some of you may be wondering, where has Alexander IV been this entire episode? Well, the poor boy and his mother had been kept under guard by Cassander since the death of Olympias in 316, as little more than a political prisoner. The peace of the dynasts was technically made under the impression of an idea of a united Macedonian kingdom, declaring that Alexander IV would take the throne in 305 once he came of age. But Cassander, having long tired of the charade of being a guardian of the kingship, ordered Alexander IV and Roxanne to be executed. After 500 years of ruling Macedon, seeing it develop from the backwater of Greece to the supreme power of the known world, the dynasty that birthed Philip II and Alexander the Great was now gone. The wars of the Diadochi had snuffed out the lies of the Archaid house one by one and it really was only a matter of time for the child King Alexander IV once Cassander took power. Now, there was no facade, no pretensions of acting for the good of the throne of Macedon. Each successor began to view their territories, forged in blood and conquest, as theirs by right, as their own kingdoms. As Diodorus Siculus would put it, quote, Since there was no longer anyone to inherit the realm, each of those who had rule over nations or cities entertained hopes of royal power, and held the territory that had been placed under his authority, as if it were a kingdom won by the spear. The king is dead. Long live the kings. And so, we end another episode of the series on the wars of the Diadohoi. I'd like to thank you all for listening, and I'm going to do some housekeeping if I still have you here. First, a thank you to a Mr. Ryan Stitt, host of the History of the Ancient Greece podcast, for allowing me to do a guest plug on his show. It's a great program, covering everything you want to know about pre-Hellenistic Greece in itty-bitty detail, and I highly recommend you all to check it out if you haven't yet. I'll provide a link in the show notes below to his website. In terms of a show schedule, it will follow something like this. We have two more episodes of the To the Strongest series, one covering the fourth Diodohoi War, and a fifth wrapping up the final struggles of Macedonia. 
From there, we will wrap up the narrative of the period by doing a special on the Celtic invasions of Greece, which will be part storytelling and partly a look at the culture of Celtic civilization. From that point on, things will be less strict in terms of following an overall chronology. We will be doing a lot of jumping around for across the map, covering the Hellenistic Big Three, Antigone Macedon, the Seleucid Empire, and the Ptolemaic Kingdom of Egypt. There will be other topics, such as looking at how a Hellenistic city is made, the rise of mystery religions, and daily life in the kingdoms of the period. These will add variety to the show's format and structure. Looking at politics and great wars is fun and all, but I really want to get to the nitty-gritty about the various facets of the Hellenistic world. And if you have a topic you want to look at in an episode, please let me know on Twitter or email. The next episode will be relanding sometime in December, since finals for university takes precedence, so I apologize for the delay between shows in the last few months. Once I've finished in December, I will have a lot more time to devote for working on the show and creating bigger and better products. So, if you listen to the show and want to hear more, please subscribe to me on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you want to see my show grow an audience, please leave a 5-star review on iTunes. It would mean a great deal to me. If you want to get in contact with me, you can follow me on Twitter at HellenisticPOD, that's all one word, or you can email me at HellenisticAgePodcast at gmail.com. To get more show notes about the episode, including sources used, maps, and helpful diagrams, you can check out my website at HellenisticAgePodcast.wordpress.com. All of these links will be provided in the show notes. So, until next time... You've been listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast.